John chapter 5. Let's begin reading in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but... I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, before we begin to mine the depths of what your word teaches about your mysterious, transcendent, incomprehensible nature. 
we just want to pause and say that we're grateful for the mercies you've shown us in allowing us to live in a country where we're free to worship you without fear of imprisonment or persecution, unlike so, so many others throughout the world. We're thankful for that, and we want to be obedient to you as you've commanded us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we would pray for kings and all who are in authority, that we might lead peaceable and quiet lives and uh, bear witness to the fact that there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we do pray for our leaders this morning. Uh, we have entered into a, a situation in our country where sin is enshrined in the law, where ungodliness is sanctioned, where wickedness is praised, and where anyone who would call it out is, in some cases, forced to be silent. Here we are, Father, and you know about these things, and Lord, we have so many blessings. We're so grateful to live in this situation, and so I pray that as we walk into a world that is increasingly hostile to the teachings of your word, that you would cause us to be wise, that you would cause us to be holy, and that the things that we say would match not only what your word says, but that they would match a lifestyle that is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I'm praying for your church, Indian Creek and churches all around the world, that instead of just calling out wickedness out there, we would be willing to repent of it in here. And that before we take the little speck of dust out of our neighbor's eye, that you would lead us to remove the log from our own eye. Lord, may it not be said that our testimony regarding marriage and holy living is different from the way that we actually live. I pray that you would cause the men in our church to love their wives as Christ loved the church, to sacrificially lead and guide them, to provide for them, to protect their families, to search the scriptures so that they might teach and wash their families with the water of the word that you would raise up great women in our church who are walking in submission to you and in submission to their husbands in obedience to what your word teaches. And that you would allow us to raise our children, the next generation, the young people that you've entrusted not only to our families but to our church as a whole to walk with Christ. Lord, I pray that you would just cause us to be ready to fight, not with flesh and blood, but to fight against the workings of the enemy. Uh, Lord, there's many more things we could ask, and you know what we need, and you know our hearts, and so we pray that you would just pour out your grace in our church today. Father, we also want to pray for Guy and Marianne as they minister in Israel today. Uh, we ask that you would keep them safe and healthy and make their ministry fruitful there. Uh, Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is the most popular religion in the United States? I mean, it depends on how you define your terms and set your boundaries, of course. 
Some would say Christianity is the most popular religion. Others would say no religion is the most popular religion in the United States. A lot of people would point out that for the first time ever, uh, recent polls suggest that more people don't belong to a religious group, a synagogue or a church or a mosque or a temple, than uh, do belong to one of those types of organizations. But other people might point out, hey, you don't have to belong to a group in order to be a religious person. I, I don't have any evidence to back it up, but part of me wonders if we pushed past the denominational labels and got down to the heart of the matter, we would learn that the most popular religion in our country is what Robert Bella in his 1985 book, Habits of the Heart, calls Sheilaism. Have you heard of this? Sheilaism. Bella and his co-authors had observed a shift almost 40 years ago in the way that Americans thought about God and their religious beliefs. And to illustrate the shift, he recounts an interview that they conducted with a young nurse named Sheila Larson. Here's how Sheila described her own religious beliefs. She says, quote, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheila-ism. Just my own little voice. It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess take care of each other. I think he would want us to take care of each other. Uh, do you know anybody who embraces Sheilaism or Bobism or Jainism or Jakeism? Like your own personal hodgepodge cobbled together of what your impressions are uh, and your, your preferences are about the existence and the nature of God and, and what he expects from the world. Like when I think of God, I think fill in the blank. I wonder if the most popular form of religious belief, a form that you may have co-opted to one degree or another yourself, is something like Sheilaism, essentially a projection of our own preferences onto what we think God is like. But friends, if God really exists, think about this, if he is really there, if he really exists, then we need to leave Sheilaism behind. By the way, if there's anyone in here, I think there are a few named Sheila. I'm not trying to single you out. You get what I'm saying? If, if God really exists, we need to leave this behind. If you think about it for a second, it's very obvious why that is. Because everyone who wishes to be known wishes to be known as they actually are. Not as they are thought about or, or wished about by somebody else. Not as they just are useful to somebody else. I mean, have your parents ever done this to you? Think about this. Like they, they say, well, my little girl, she just loves sports. And you, you, hear, you overhear mom or dad saying this and you think, well, they never asked me if I like sports. What are they doing? They're just projecting the fact that they want you to like sports onto you, right? Do you like that when your girlfriend or your spouse does this sort of thing to you, like they think of you as the sum total of your personality is just the ways they wish you were? Or 
the ways that they find you useful to them. You would not put up with that. You would push back. You would say, you don't really know me at all. But when we come to the task of knowing God, of actually having a relationship with the one who created all of what exists, we say, well, I like to think of God as whatever. And we just make up whatever we want, whatever we find useful. But God doesn't appreciate that kind of thing any more than we would. He wants to be known as he actually is. He wants to be known as he chooses to reveal himself, not merely as a figment of our imaginations. This is the whole idea behind the second commandment. He told the Israelites, don't make any graven images. What was he saying? I don't want you to imagine what I'm like and make it up and then worship the image of what you think I should be. I want you to worship me as I reveal myself to be. And at no other time, folks, are we confronted with this reality more startlingly than at Christmas time. The event we celebrate at Christmas is the moment in which God became man. The, the eternal God, who never had a beginning in all of his immensity, and all of his glory, he took upon himself the limitations of humanity. And in that moment, that thick mist surrounding the inner life of God himself begins to lift a little bit and we can see what he's like more fully than we have ever been able to do before. And one of the things that we come to know through the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the reality of the threeness and the oneness of God. God is three in one sense, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet in another sense, he's only one. God is triune. Now, I know that sounds very austere and churchish and philosophical. But we're going to spend the next several weeks meditating on God's three-in-oneness. And I'm zealous to do this for several reasons. First of all, there is nothing more important in life than to know God. Nothing is more important than to know God. You might think that your uh, marriage is important, and it is. But it's not nearly so important as knowing God. You might think your grades are important, but they're not as important as knowing God. You might think the appointment that you have with the specialist this week is important, and it is, but it is not as important as knowing God. Nothing is more important than knowing God. Second, the triunity of God reminds us that God is not like us. This is important for us to remember, that God is holy. That means he's completely different from the way that we are, if it means anything. He is infinitely transcendent. He's gloriously mysterious. He is utterly incomprehensible. The trinity, the triunity, the three-in-oneness of God humbles us. It reminds us that apart from his gracious revelation of himself, we can know nothing about him. You cannot go out and find things out about God unless he opens himself up and says, this is what I'm like. He makes himself known, but not exhaustively. And those hidden mysteries are an occasion to glorify and worship him anew. Third reason I'm excited to study this is because the triunity of God reminds us, folks, it is not about us. It is almost axiomatic these days to presume that religion and religious ideas about God or morality are simply systems of thought and feeling designed to alleviate misery and help us live a better life. 
Like, why do you come to church? A lot of people, if they're honest, they would say, well, it's because it helps me to live a better life, helps me in my marriage, it helps me know how to raise my children, helps me feel less guilty, I feel better. But folks, that is not why we exist. It's not about us, it's about God. And the Trinity reminds us of this. We're confronted by this otherworldly doctrine, the threeness and the oneness of God, and we're reminded, wait a second, the purpose of this book is not to help me feel better. It's actually to bring glory and honor to the God who is actually there. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to spend a little bit of time, first of all, talking about what does the Bible teach, generally speaking, about the three-in-oneness of God. And then we're going to focus in on God the Father for a few moments. And then after that, if we have a little bit of time, we're going to take some practical entailments and pull those practical entailments out of those truths. And I just want to warn you, we are going to go into some deep waters. But folks, this is worth it. And I think you'll see that if you stay with me. So first of all, let's turn our attention to the doctrine of the Trinity the doctrine of the Trinity. And before we examine this doctrine, we need to make sure that we're approaching it with the proper attitude and posture. Dutch theologian Herman Bavinck offers this caveat. He says, quote, In considering this teaching, it is particularly necessary that a tone of holy reverence and childlike awe be the characteristic of our approach and attitude. Such a holy respect suits us also as we witness God revealing himself in his word as a triune God. For we must always remember that as we study this fact, we are not dealing with a doctrine about God, with an abstract concept or with a scientific proposition about the nature of divinity. We are not dealing with a human construction which we ourselves or which others have put upon the facts and which we now try to analyze and logically to dismember. Rather, in treating of the Trinity, we are dealing with God himself with the one and true God who has revealed himself as such in his word. And folks, when we consider the Bible's teaching as a whole, we're confronted with this reality that seems contradictory. We see in the first place that God is one. God is one. In fact, this is the one central claim of the Old Testament that was repeated every single day by faithful believers in Old Testament times. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God's oneness, his absolute singular uniqueness is a necessary feature of his being. Think about this. You cannot have more than one absolute self-existent being. It's impossible. There can only be one by definition. And yet when we come to the New Testament, we observe that in some sense God is also three You have God the Father, and then Jesus is clearly shown to be equal with God, and then there's God the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about each of those in turn in the coming weeks, but what's clear is that even though God is one, there are three persons referred to as God, and those three persons are presented in Scripture as distinct from one another. This is the basic idea of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so when we talk about the Trinity, we are here's what we mean. We're simply trying to take into account all that the Bible teaches with reference to this truth. And then we're trying to avoid affirming anything that contradicts what the Bible teaches. 
I, I know we appreciate being able to say that faith in Christ is simple. Even a small child can believe. That is so important to remember. It's so true. But when we're talking about the nature of God, we wade into deep waters very quickly, don't we? And, and by the way, this is the reason why in, in the beginning of our worship service, do you remember, we had these passages talking about God as a consuming fire. Moses finds God in the burning bush. This is a common image in the Bible. What is true about fire? Does it care whether you like it or not? <laughs> no, it just consumes. It, 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 it takes over. And, and, and in this way, it's a fitting image for God. He is who he is. And nevertheless, though, there's these three common ways in which we tend to speak untruthfully about God when it comes to the Trinity. So I want you to be on guard against these. We're going to do a little bit of teaching here, okay? First, there are many who fall into the trap of thinking that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just merely expressions of the one true God uh, that show up in history. There's only one God, but he just appears in different ways. Sometimes he shows up and he's the Father. Sometimes he shows up and he's the Son. Sometimes he shows up and he's the Holy Spirit. This is called modalism. Modalism. Uh, there are three modes of existence, but God is one person, and it's a dangerous heresy. There are numerous gospel implications for this. For example, if there is no differentiation between the members of the Godhead, then certain attributes of God, think about this, are contingent on God creating the world. How can God be a loving God until there is someone else there to love? If God is merely one and not also three, then God becomes a loving God when he creates human beings, which means that love is not essential to his nature. He cannot be an essentially loving God. A loving God cannot be a self-existent God, but the Bible presents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as distinct from one another. Think about Mark chapter 1. Jesus is there. He's, he goes to John, and he says, I need to be baptized. Uh, near the Jordan River. And John takes him down into the water, and Jesus is about to be baptized. And then what happens? They hear a voice from heaven. This is God the Father saying, this is my son. Listen to him. And then the Holy Spirit descends from heaven like a dove. So you've got one instance in which the distinction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is uh, manifested. Uh, but, but there is this uh, unbiblical way that we tend to think about God as though he were merely three manifestations of one person. Another with, uh, way in which we tend to speak untruthfully about God is to imagine that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not divine in equal measure, that there is rank among the persons of the Trinity. For example, an ancient heresy which persists down to this very day imagines that God the Son was actually created at some point in the distant past. There, uh, a pastor from Alexandria in the fourth century named Arius, he popularized this idea. He said, there was when he was not. There was a time when Jesus, when the Son, did not exist. Which means that Jesus might be a God, little g, but not God in the fullest sense of the word. And I'm sure you can see the problem with this. If Jesus isn't God, then what business does he have forgiving sin? What right does he have to forgive the sins of men? A third way in which we tend to speak untruthfully about God's triune nature is to understand 
each of the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as like three parts, when combined, they make up the one true God. Now, technically, this is called partialism, uh, where each of those persons in the Trinity kind of combine together to form God. I call it Saturday morning cartoonism. Because it's kind of like when those four teenagers point their rings at each other and they combine to form Captain Planet. And he says, by your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. Do you remember this? Am I the only one who watched Captain Planet? Jamie's there. We have a couple of witnesses. Or how each of the original Power Rangers each had their own Zord, but then the Zords combined together to create one Megazord. Anybody? All right, Parker, thank you. (laughs) Uh, This idea that there's three powerful beings and then they combine to form God, that's not what the Bible teaches us about our God. God is not a three-headed monster. He's not a single being that just shows up in three different ways. He's not a single God, capital G, who's helped along by lesser gods, lowercase g. Uh, God himself is one in one sense and three in another sense. You say, well, I have real life problems and I have a lot of things on my mind and I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around what you're talking about. I think I'm going to check out. But folks, listen. What did you expect? That, that we in our limited human capacity could comprehend everything there is to know about God and like limit him to our understanding? No way. Of course there are going to be things about God that we say, that's beyond my pay grade. There's one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And yet these three persons are distinct from one another. Now, those three sentences, when you take them on their own, they're easy to understand. It's when you combine them that it's difficult, isn't it? Uh, It seems contradictory, but we need to humble ourselves at some point and say, God has told me what he wanted to do. There was a verse that uh, we went back to often when I was going through seminary, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and the things that he's revealed belong to us and to our children. You know what that means? That means that if there is something that God does not want you to know, you will not know it. Period. You will not be able to figure it out, even you smart ones. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We get what he has revealed to us. And maybe one day he'll reveal more. When we get to heaven, certainly we'll see more of him. But even then, are we going to know him as comprehensively as he knows himself? Certainly not. Now, before we turn our attention specifically to God the Father, let me just ask a question of the men in this room. Men, God has given us the distinct duty to guide our families and our church family to know the Lord. I mean, think about this. Who did God hold responsible when Adam and Eve sinned? Primarily, Adam. It was Adam who was responsible. Whose responsibility is it to teach your family about the mysterious and the wonderful nature of God as three in one? Men, it's yours, primarily. It's yours. 
Are you devoting yourself to the word of God in such a way that you can guide your family to know this glorious, immense, wonderful God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Maybe it's time that we need to lay aside the tools or the video games or the fishing pole or the hunting rifle every now and then and pick up this book so that we can take on our responsibility to lead our families to know this God. I got one amen, all right? Okay, I know we're wading through deep waters and we could certainly spend more time doing so, but having laid at least a basic foundation of the scripture's teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, let's turn our attention to John chapter 5 and to Jesus' description of God the Father. God the Father. What's taking place in John chapter 5? Well, we studied this together several years ago, and I know you all remember that, and we learned that uh, Jesus is having to give a defense in a capital trial. The Judeans have come to him and they're accusing him of a capital crime, a crime worthy of death, because Jesus has apparently broken the Sabbath and he's calling God his Father and thereby making himself equal with God. And they're saying that's blasphemous. That is a capital crime. That is not acceptable. And so the passage that we read a few minutes ago is sort of Jesus' explanation and defense of himself to the Judeans. He responds essentially in four ways. First of all, he offers a vindication of himself. He calls God and the Bible and Moses and John the Baptist and the works that he was doing to witness that he had every right to claim equality with God. Then he offers an invitation to those who would believe in him that they would have eternal life if they actually embraced him as their Lord and Savior. Third, he makes an implication Namely, that the religion of the Pharisees, sincere though it may have been, was actually going to earn them judgment rather than salvation. And then finally, he makes an accusation, and he says, the reason why you don't believe in me, it's not because you're ignorant and you don't know better. It's because you love the glory of men rather than the glory that comes from God alone. And so in the midst of all that, along the way, we're able to get a glimpse of the way that the Father relates to Jesus in the work of creation and salvation and that vision is, is truly wonderful because as Jesus is going to say later in the gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 17, his father is also the father of those who are in Christ. Remember what he told his disciples? He says, I'm going, or, or to the women, he says, I'm going to my father and your father. So what's true of Jesus' father is also true in, in terms of the relationship in a derivative sense with those who are in Christ. So what does Jesus have to say about his father? How does God the Father relate to his son? There are at least three things that we could say about God the Father. First of all, God the Father loves his son. God the Father loves his son. Listen to the intimate fatherly love of God that Jesus describes in verse 19. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Those of you who are fathers, you, I'm sure, intuitively understand this. I mean, what's one of the, what's one of the greatest ways that we as fathers can show love toward our children? We show them what we're doing, and then we invite them into that, and then it's our joy to see that they're able to do it themselves, right? Right? 
This is what God the Father does with the incarnate Jesus Christ. He shows him what he is doing, and then in his love, Jesus is able to do it as well. This is what a father does. The father loves his son, and by extension, that fatherly love extends to all who are in Christ. Now, I realize that for many of you in this room, an increasing number of you, the earthly sense in which this is the love of a father has been robbed from you. You were deprived of the love of your earthly father for one reason or another. That is hard. That is a lot to deal with and far more than we could get into in just a few moments. But what all of us understand intuitively, friends, think about this, is that a father is supposed to love his children. Almost no one would disagree with that. We know that's true. A father is supposed to love his children. He's someone whose love is deep, unstopping, inexhaustible, patient, zealous, active, intense. That's what a father is supposed to be. And I would submit to you that the reason we all know that is because we have a paradigm in God the Father and his love for his son. And though it's still a grief, the truth that you must come to recognize and believe and walk in is that God the Father's love for you, if you're in Christ, is intense and zealous and patient and unstopping and deep. Friends, do you really believe that? That the Father loves you the way that he loves Christ. What does it mean to speak of God as Father? God the Father loves the Son. Secondly, God the Father sends his Son. He sends his Son. This word send appears uh, in verses 24, 36, and 37, but it's a concept that dominates the entire passage. I'm, I'm using this word send to encompass a whole set of realities that Jesus describes in this passage. In sending the Son, folks, think about this. The Father gives him two important duties. First of all, he gives Jesus the right to give life to whomever he will. He gives Jesus the right, the authority, to actually give life and to raise people from the dead. And then secondly, he gives him the authority to execute judgment upon those who do not believe. This is fitting because from eternity past, according to verse 26, the Father has actually granted the Son to have life in himself. Now, you and I, we have life. Right? We're alive, but our life is altogether different from the life of God because our life is contingent on the life of somebody else. God's life isn't that way. God's life is dependent on himself alone. He's self-existent. And from eternity past, God the Father has granted God the Son to have life in himself, self-causation. Again, our minds are blown. We can't understand these things, but he's contingent upon no one but himself. So what I'm saying is that it, the, the generosity, the giving nature of God the Father is, is wrapped up in this act of sending the Son into the world and as Father, he gives the incarnate Jesus the authority and the ability to complete the work that he sent him to accomplish. And then the Father actually bears witness to the authority of Jesus. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So as Father, God sends the Son. He grants him in his incarnation all the authority and all the ability to complete the work. And then he sees to it that his son succeeds by bearing witness to the authority that Jesus possesses. God the Father sends the son and then he makes sure that he succeeds 
in what he does. And this is, again, one of the things that it means to say that God is Father. He is a God who gives his son what is needed to accomplish the task for which he has been sent. And folks, in a derivative sense, the same is true for all those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Like Jesus said, remember, even as the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And I'm giving you everything that you need to be successful in the task I've sent you to complete. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who doesn't change. God the Father loves his Son. God the Father sends his Son. He gives him whatever he needs to accomplish the task he's given him to fulfill. And then thirdly, I know we're moving quickly here, but thirdly, God the Father honors the Son. Here's what I mean. The Son bears the name, the title, the honor of his father. All the accolades coming to the father actually come to the son. Where am I getting this? Notice verse 43. I have come in my father's name. That is, Jesus' identity as the incarnate son originates in the father. The father begets, the son is begotten, and therefore he bears the name his father has given him as he goes about accomplishing his task of salvation and his judgment. And and folks, there are many facets to God's fatherhood, but this is perhaps, I think, the most profound of all. God the father, as father, gives his identity and his honor and his name to his son. I mean, isn't this the problem with so much of our society today? Fatherlessness, generation upon generation upon generation of individuals who have never been told, you don't do it that way because you're my son. We we Grogan's don't act that way. No, you're going to keep your commitment to this job because you are my daughter. We don't act that way. We don't quit a job after only one week. You're going to keep going because of who you are. Generation upon generation have not been given an identity by their father. They haven't been elevated and honored by a strong, courageous father. Because this is what a father does. He gives his name to his son. Why do we have that expectation? I would argue it's because we have a standard in God the Father. Don't we? Some of you have been robbed of that with reference to your earthly father. He didn't bestow a good name. He besmirched his name before handing it down to you. Or maybe he never honored you and elevated you to a place where you knew my dad gladly entrusts his identity to me. And you go through life with this constant sense that I'm just a disappointment. And, And folks, that is so, so hard. I acknowledge that. That is so difficult. It's a lonely mountain to climb over. Some of you have had to climb that mountain. Others are still on the slopes. But what what I want you to know is that your heavenly father is pleased to give you his name. He is pleased to give you his honor. Who is he giving that to? Well, Jesus is very clear. It's those to whom Jesus has given life. He gave Jesus the authority to give life to those who believe in him and to hand down judgment against those who do not. That's why earlier in John's gospel he says, those who have the Son have life, and the one who doesn't have the Son does not have life. But for those who believe in Jesus, who've received him, who believe on his name, if you have the Son, if you believe in the Son, then guess what? 
you become a son. You become a daughter. You are, you're joined to Christ. And so God is pleased to say to you, that one's mine. That's my son. That's my daughter. And he offers you all the honors and the privileges of sonship to the most illustrious and honored father in existence. This is what God the Father does. He loves his children. He sends his children. And he honors his children by giving us his very name. Again, these are deep waters, and we could wade much, much deeper. But as we turn our attention to a handful of practical entailments, let's just first make the observation that God's fatherhood perfectly captures the balance between his transcendence and his closeness, his otherness and his presence with us. Like he is God, he's far above us, he's holy, he, but not as a distant slave master, he is above us as a father. And so he's also close to us and involved with us. Recognizing that reality that God is so far above us but so with us, that's what it means to fear the Lord. That, that's what it means. You stand in awe of the holy God and you stand in dependence on his fatherly care. So much in our world today would be remedied if we would live with that reality, right? Like, God is so far above us. He is so righteous. He is so holy. And yet he is so here right now. God the Father. Second practical entailment. All great works of faith have their genesis in the mysterious truths of the triunity of God. Folks, the world would want us to forget this. But the greatest works of mercy and kindness in the world, by far, by far, have been completed by people who are following Jesus. That is a historical fact. Even up to this very year, Christians have been more generous in charitable giving than anybody by a mile. And why is that? Folks, if you get down to the root of it, it's because of who God is. Why am I bringing this out? Because as Christians, we are so tempted in the throes of life, in the trials of life to say, I don't want to get into this stuff that seems impractical or hard to understand. I want to leave it aside. But folks, if we do that, if we leave aside who God is, his nature, then we're pulling out the very driving force, the motor, the engine that drives us to do the things that God calls us to do. We just this week went to a, a, a ribbon cutting of a tremendous ministry here in Mineral Wells, Rest Yourself Ministries. The testimonies are deeply powerful. The work that's being done is amazing. And yet, what is it that's driving that work? What is it that causes it to go forward? It's the fact that the people who are doing that work have been called by this God, this triune, wonderful God, his the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You take away who God is and you're going to lose all that other stuff, folks. Third practical entailment. If it is true that God the Father is the paradigm of the perfect Father, then we must live the way our Savior lived in complete trust of Him. Uh, this is, again, for those of you who are fathers, this is one of your joys, isn't it? When your children trust you and you know that they trust you. I mean, that's, that's wonderful. When they say, Dad, can you help me? Dad, what, what should I do here? 
Dad, I, I don't see it the way you see it, but I've learned to trust you, and I'm going to follow your counsel. I mean, we love that, guys, don't we? And, of course, we earthly dads, we don't always earn that. Often we don't. Nor do we steer our children in the way that we, they should go always because we are imperfect and sinful people. But our Heavenly Father is always right. When he asks you to move forward and you don't know what's on the other side of the door, are you willing to trust him as your father? Like, I know you love me and I know you're way smarter than I am. I don't know what's on the other side of that door, but I'm going to go through it because you've asked me to do it. When he leads you down a path that seems dark and difficult where you go where he says, our Savior did. You remember that? Even in the garden when the trial of his faith and his own father was at its most intense, what does he say? Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus in his humanity, he understands what you're going through. He knows what it's like to have a difficult time trusting God and obeying what he's asked you to do, but he trusted his father, and so should we. So as we enter a time of response, I wonder if there's an area of your life in which you're tempted to say, no, I, God, I don't trust you with that. I trust you with my family, I trust you with my job, but there's this one little area that I put a parenthesis around, and I say, I'm going to do it my way. I wonder if there's a, uh, an area where you know what he wants you to do about this or that aspect of your life. It's not complicated, it's very clear, but you're tempted to say, God, I trust you, but I'm going to handle that particular circumstance and situation. Or you know how he's wanting you to be generous with your giving and you're tempted to say, no, I don't think I can afford that. I don't think I can trust that my father's going to provide for me on that. Or you've sinned against somebody and you know you need to ask forgiveness and make it right, but you just feel like if you do what your father is asking you to do, then it's not going to go well for you and you're struggling to trust. And what I'm going to ask you to do on the basis of what God's word says here in John chapter 5, five and many of the other passages that we have examined today and we've only scratched the surface, folks, is in this moment to respond to the word of God and say, God, I'm going to trust you with that thing because you're my good father. Would you bow with me before the Lord?